and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by Hachette Australia. Listeners, when a debut novel lands on your desk with cover quotes from the likes of Leanne Moriarty and Sally Hepworth, you know it's going to be something special. Such was my mindset when I began reading Diane Yarwood's The Wakes, which was published by Hachette in Australia on the 1st of March. A tender, funny and heartfelt book about two failed marriages, two strangers who fall in love, friends who start a catering business and the four funerals that connect all these people together. Author Diane Yarwood is a Sydney-based writer with a background in accounting and corporate advisory work and who also loves to cook. When she was 40, Diane suffered a serious illness and her life was saved by an emergency doctor. This brush with death gave Diane the courage to pursue her passion for writing and The Wakes is the result. A life-affirming and uplifting book that will stay with you long after you're finished and I'm excited, listeners, to have the opportunity to chat with Diane today. Welcome, Diane. Thank you very much for having me. Such a pleasure. It's my pleasure to have you. <laughs> my goodness, what a novel and the reception it's been getting is nothing short of brilliant. So firstly, I want to say congratulations. What an incredible achievement. And secondly, how does your dream measure up to the reality of getting your first book published? I said to someone the other day, the dream has landed. I I dreamt about this for so long and it exceeds it, I think. From the moment it was hit the bookshelves, it's just been joyful. I mean, it's been joyful for quite a while after a lot of years of hard work and you know, and the editing process, but it's even better. It's just satisfying is the word. I think it's, it's and a relief that something you wanted so badly actually happened without anything stopping it at the last minute. Yeah. <laughs> I had that feeling and the reaction from friends and family particularly and then people I don't know is so heartwarming. I, I set out when I wrote the book particularly to, I wanted readers to feel a certain way when they finished it. And when you're writing something, you don't know whether you're going to pull that off because you're so you're in the detail and you're in the forest. And I and Eve and my husband would say to me, "Surely you knew how people would feel." And I said, "No. I, I, every time I read it, I, I saw things to improve. That's where I was still very much in the writing. And but the response I'm getting is, I feel like I it, it's happened. I've achieved from, from feedback I'm getting what I wanted in the that sort of really life-affirming feeling people are getting when they finish it. So it's just a wonderful feeling that it's out in the world and people are feeling like that. So Yeah, yeah, just yeah. brilliant. Diane, as mentioned, you became quite ill at the age of 40 and an emergency doctor saved your life. Was this when the seeds of this story were sown or was that to come later? I don't think that's... I. It was interesting, that brush with... The, I came very close to dying. I knew I was dying. I accepted I was dying. And that... Definitely, and I hear a lot of people who who have a similar experience to me have this same sort of reaction. You are so keenly aware of how fragile and short your life is, and writing a novel was the thing for me that I would regret if something else happened. I didn't trust my body. I had an autoimmune disease, so I didn't trust my body. I thought it could turn on me again. And the research I've done in death is the two main things that people talk about is when they're dying, on the cusp of dying, is they want to tell people they love, that they love them, and they also talk about regrets of the life they might, that they wanted, the thing they wanted to do. 
that they didn't try or or do. And I knew a novel for me was that thing, just to at least try. But when I sat down to write, and originally it wasn't to describe that feeling, that's how it ended up. It was, I I just naturally started writing about death. It seemed to be the thing my mother died in my final year of school. Um, I've had a bit of death to contend with and it seemed to be something I needed to explore for me and it was just what I started started writing about. But always with that bit of humour attached because humour is really important to me. I think it's one of the best things in life and it was obviously the way I needed to cope with death as well. So it just happened organically. But as I got into it, I, I really felt I had that unusual experience of so so I had an, I was sick for about a year with a rare autoimmune disease called Addison's disease that attacked my adrenal glands so gradually and and they produce cortisol which gives you the energy to live so to physical and mental and so I was gradually depleting just gradually having life taken away from me to the point where I went into a crisis and I was dying and I knew I was dying and I was dying. And then the treatment in, in emergency was to give me an intravenous injection of steroid. So even though it's a chronic disease and I take medication for the rest of my life, it was an immediate treatment. So I went from, which is a very rare thing to, to get better so quickly when you're so sick. So I had that intense juxtaposition of death and life. And I've never forgotten that feeling. I will never take life for granted because of that. And to some extent, that's the feeling I want you to have which is why I it's a novel about death but it's really a novel about life um that idea that you learn from a lot about something from opposites you know we learn about peace from war and death teaches us a lot a lot about life and that's what gradually became something that I wanted to sort of convey in a story form not my story someone else's story yeah Fantastic. Okay, so I think we've talked around the story a little bit. So I wondered if perhaps for the benefit of people who haven't Mm -hmm. read the book, if you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Okay, so it's a story of a small, it's set in Sydney, pre-COVID 2018. It's a story about a small group of strangers whose lives become increasingly intertwined in a cluster of funerals one spring. They're they're all in their mid-40s, in the middle of their lives. And when we meet them, they're their lives are not how they thought they'd be at that point. They, they, there's a couple of marriages on the brink of collapse. And the two main, so there's sort of three main characters and a few others involved. And the two main women meet a little way into the novel. They form an unusual sort of friendship. And then they go on to form a funeral catering business. And this is how they connect to the funerals. Through that funeral catering, they see deaths from a sort of an ordinary everyday point of view, a quite a quirky and funny point of view sometimes, which was, you know, it's just an interesting look at death. Uh, and at these funerals, they meet Chris and Paul. Chris connects all the funerals and uh, refers these, oh, I, don't, I don't know how much to give away here, but <laughs> that's how they all connect. And yeah. through the funerals, they start to see life differently. We, we see how this sort of profound time in their lives is affected by death. And there's a mystery there's a little bit of a mystery to it. I loved, I was addicted to Agatha Christie novels when I was a teenager. I do love a mystery. So we, the book opens on the eve of a of a really big funeral, uh, someone who li- really lived life and who was adored. And she's died at home alone. In, that's not giving anything away. That's in the first page of the book. She's died in, in circumstances that we're not quite sure what happened and two of our main characters might know more than 
they're letting on. So I loved that yeah. aspect of the story. Now, mm. as you mentioned, Diane, the story is actually told from several points of view. Mm. And I wondered, was there any one voice that was louder than the others for you? And which one came first? Oh, that's an interesting question. Claire's voice came first. It was the loudest first. Then along came Louisa and uh, she's hard to ignore. She's absolutely <laughs> adorable. And I loved her take on life. All my characters are flawed, but she's got such a passion for life despite hardship and a great sense of humour. And then the male voices started. I, I, I have to say I loved writing the male characters, particularly Paul. A friend of mine said, how did you nail Paul? Because these are just so different to me. Um, so they all, I always knew how the book would start and end, finish and end, but that jostling in the middle of it, of their voices and their stories moved around a bit. So I wouldn't say any one of them stood out to me then. They all became, I became very close to them, I'm sure. All authors are the same. When I finished the final, final proofread, I, I sat in my living area and I felt them all around me and I sort of said goodbye to them and I said, I, I'm, I didn't speak out loud, I'm not that weird, but <laughs> in my head I said to them, I won't be putting words in your mouths anymore and um, I, I still miss them, really. They're very real to me. So, yeah. And I wouldn't say one is, oh, would I? No. Oh, probably the women. I don't know. I, I <laughs> It's like choosing your favourite child, isn't it? That's it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I totally understand. This story flashes back and forth in time and switches mm. between the different points of view, which we just talked about. As mm. a first-time novelist, I wondered, did you have any doubts at all about constructing the story this way or was it simply the way that you felt you needed to tell it? I don't think I had any doubts. I think the reason I went back in time, it's sort of a structural, metaphoric sort of thing that I wanted you to know at the beginning that Beth died because to me it was a, a structural way of showing that life is short and because a couple of the characters have the intention of meeting her and we don't know whether they're going to get there in time, but, but we know the time frame. So we're aware of life's brevity. That's what I was intending there. So I always intended to go back in time. The backstories, that was a little bit of a trickier thing to um, bring that out in the right timing, in the right amounts. Mm, yes, it was deliberate and it didn't come necessarily easily. It, I think that's something you have to be really, you have to really work out the structure when you start doing that, uh, that the backstory doesn't become dense because it's not, you, my novel, I very want, much want you in the present moment, in the action, in their lives to feel in that place. So sometimes the, I think I would, would refine the backstory because I felt that it was taking you away from that sense of the present, which the novel is arguing we should live more in the present, not in the past. And I think some of the, obviously some of the things the characters do wrong is to keep going backwards a bit too much and hanging on to the past. So that was something I had to refine in the editing process to make sure that worked. And, and also just that one character didn't get more time than the other when you do the points of view, that that kept the flow of time working well. It was definitely yeah. a propulsive novel. You know, we just kind of moved seamlessly between the two points of view and at no stage were we ever confused or worried about where we were in, in time. Mm. It just 
flowed so effortlessly. Thank you. And in terms of points of view, it, it, from a writing point of view, a really interesting thing we had during the edit was because being a debut novelist, I, I, I didn't have much experience. I'd never done a course. I just decided I would write. <laughs> I think I would have brought the novel out a bit earlier maybe if I'd done a course, but in my mind um, I had a, a voice. I knew I had a particular voice. I didn't want that changing. And I, even though it took me a while, I felt uh, the passage of time and I didn't want to do a course where someone sent me off on a writing task uh, because I just thought, well, that's a waste of time. I've got this novel I have in my head that I want to write. So I didn't know all the writing rules and uh, I didn't realise there's a bit of a rule about introducing new points of view. So it became a bit of a discussion during the edit that one of the points of view comes in a little bit quite a way into the novel. And was, but I just thought it worked. I just did that right from the start. And the end discussion was it wasn't technically maybe how it would be taught to be done, but it worked and it worked for the novel. And when it hit the final editing stage, the, the copy editor's uh, response was far from being jarring. She felt that it was an unexpected delight to suddenly be privy to this character's particular character's thoughts. So that was really interesting for me. To my my publishers have been amazing. I, I can't praise them highly enough. And it was all very open discussion, and they were very trusting of my creative path I wanted to take with the novel. So yeah, it was just very interesting. Hmm. Fantastic. I always find it remarkable when an author writes about weighty subjects, in this case, marriage breakdown, illness, death and grief with a light touch. And that's certainly what you've managed to do in this book. Despite the sadness that underpins the two failed marriages, as well as the four deaths, you still manage to inject levity and hope into this story. I mean, to some extent, you've already spoken about it, but I wondered if you could tell me more about why you wanted to explore these themes while creating a book that celebrates life. That's a pretty interesting question. As I said before, I sat down without even thinking and started writing about death, but I am inherently a very positive person. Uh, I, I grew up in a family that really taught me to love life and it's just in, in us. We're a family of storytellers, but we love a funny story. I grew up with a lot of humour in my life and it just was how I, it's my voice. I don't think I could really do anything without that in it and I think also as Max says in the book even if you accept death it's still a very weird thing like I accepted I was dying but it's still a weird unwieldy concept to face and humor helps ground those things that are weird and helps us cope with them I think that that's where why I used it there so much I did want it to be this sort of love letter to life. So it was always going to be about the hope and because that, that's just how I see life. I'm I'm grateful when I wake up and feel well. So it's it's how I see things. So it was quite a natural thing for me to do it that way. Now we talked a little bit, I mean, obviously we've talked about death and we've talked about grief, but, you know, there's the two failed marriages in this book. And I think what I really marvelled about with both of the characters that experienced marriage breakdown, there was a great deal of sadness. So I wondered, how did you get inside their heads? It's a funny thing. One of my closest girlfriends who who uh, I've known for a long time and we do holidays together, she read the book and I know she was looking for people that we knew when she read it and she 
<laughs> finished the book and said, we need to talk about Paul because she wanted to know where I'd met Paul. And I said, he's he's imagined, I've imagined him. And I, I, I think I would have to say that about the marriages. I think I have a great deal of empathy, but I have a lot of female friends. A lot of this comes from conversations I've had with them about uh, issues with marriage and where they are in life and from reading, but it's just something I've just managed to get into their head. When I write, I I do, you know that expression, take your shoes off and put your feet in the sand? I do do that. I do sit and really, I close my eyes and think, how would I feel? I, I mean, I'm married and, and I'm in a great marriage, but, you know, all marriages have their moments. So it's it's not a big leap to, to put yourself what if my husband walked in and said that how would I feel so I do do that uh, but it's a combination of imagining it reading it having friends talk to you about it mishmash of life experiences mm, mm. <laughs> all on the page there mm, that's right and I really do put myself there when I when I write it and it would be a bit of real life in there snippets of things that I know have happened to people that whole idea too of in one of the marriages what you're willing to accept and go back to when somebody betrays you but there are so many positives in that life that you're leaving what makes you go back will you go back that question I'm always quite intrigued by that. Diane food is one of the central themes of this book the food that Claire and Louisa produce for the funerals is nothing short of mouth-watering despite their inexperience I think it's fair to say that the food is more than just refreshments or something to sustain the Mm -hmm. mourners in at the funerals I mean the lemon tart had my mouth watering the morning (laughs) buns had me googling how to make some for myself (laughs) don't get me started on Claire's chicken sandwiches Tell me, why was this something you wanted to include in the context of this story? I'm an absolute food lover, a food obsessive. Uh, when I <laughs> when I was home with my children, I left my job. I, I really took to my, I just loved staying home with my children. And I needed a creative outlet, I think, and I just went full bore into cooking. And <laughs> I would lie awake at night imagining what I'd cook for dinner the next night, which my friends, my friends thought was decidedly weird. They were thinking, oh, what am I going to cook for dinner? And I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to cook for dinner? And my family would just despair sometimes. I had young children. They'd say, can we just have something simple? Whereas I'd be dishing out these gourmet traveller meals that I'd spent a couple of hours. No wonder I didn't have much time. I was doing that during the week just because I loved it so much. I'd beg friends to let me cater for their parties, things like that. So it's and food's very important to me. I mean, I uh, I know I'm going to be happy three times a day. I just adore food. But I was asked a question about this and I started thinking about was it bigger than that on a subconscious level? And, and it may be because when my mother died, so we grew up very much in a family of meat and three veg. My father was diabetic, which even simplified the meals even more. My mother was a good cook, but we we had fairly traditional sorts of meals and we weren't allowed pasta or, or a lot of car because of my father. And then when my mother died, my sister's 18 months older than me. We're very close. And I was in my last year of school. She was at teacher's college and she took over the cooking and she just wasn't prepared to cook the meat and veg situation. So she, she got out this woman's weekly box of cards. It was a long, slim, bo- rectangular box with little cards in it. And she'd flick through her little cards. If I saw her flicking through the cards, my heart would just leap. And we had these amazing meals. And 
I look back and I think, well, there was joy every day in these days of devastating sadness. We were quite traumatised. My mother, we just adored my mother. She died after a three-year illness with breast cancer. And uh, I'm wondering whether that food was very nurturing uh, in that time for me and whether that just crept in, that feeling that food can be such a comfort when there's nothing else there comforting you. Obviously, the funeral catering, there was going to be food, but I had this great love of, when I used to cook, I loved the feeling of giving that food is. So when I cooked a dinner party and people enjoyed it, I love that act of giving. So I think that that's partly too that Claire and Louisa love, even though it's a business, I think they love the giving, nurturing, comforting people when they're sad aspect to it and these characters in the book even though they're at this funeral and they're devastated they can still find that little bit of joy in that food and that that someone has paired something with so much love yeah and you can see that joy coming off the page in the talk yes the buzz yes. that that seems to like travel around each of these gatherings about the food and yes. the reactions that people are having but yes. Those morning buns, my God, my mouth just started watering when I was reading about those morning buns. I'm thinking, oh my God, I must make. My son said that my son's a huge food. I mean, he said I could just feel it in my mouth. <laughs> which is delightful. which is lovely to know. I could have waxed lyrical about the food. I could have gone on for days. Oh, I love that so much. That's brilliant. Mm. Now, Diane, I understand that the Wakes has been optioned to buy made-up stories in partnership mm. with the fifth season for a television adaptation. Mm. My God, the news just keeps getting better <laughs> and better. Uh, so my question to you is how did this come about and is there anything more that you can tell us about it? Well, the way it came about is I've got an amazing literary agent and she got my manuscript under the noses of a, an amazing film agent in LA, which my friends just go, what? It just seems so, just like a little bit, that's a bit weird. And she and I had a couple of Australian people interested and, and uh, Bruna Papandrea is just a powerhouse. And I just, uh, I did an interview uh, quite soon after the literary agent picked me up. So they read the raw manuscript and loved it and uh, had a lovely interview. She's, she's just wonderful she loved the book uh so it's only optioned it's not bought yet but it's it's feeling positive I, they at the time they announced they said to me it would either be a tv series or a movie uh, but they send the manuscript to script writers and the script writers make that decision but she they always thought it lent itself to a tv series and i can see why and so and then there was an announcement last year that uh they were looking to adapt it to tv so it seems to have moved a little bit, but I can't say. I don't know any more than that. So mm. fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I think in the film industry it can go lots of different ways. So, But it's just very exciting to have even got that far. To have, I was just thrilled that someone of her calibre and intelligence and creativity loved the book. That was huge for me. So. Yeah, brilliant. Mm. That's just wonderful news. Mm. If there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? Well, look, apart from that, what I've talked about with life being amazing and precious and short, it's friendship. The book at its heart is a is a bit of a love letter to friendship, both male and female, and this is International Women's Day. So the comfort and support and just joy of friendship 
and how friendship can give you the courage to do things. Good friends can give you the courage to do things you may not have done and to live your life better. I'm basing that on I've got some beautiful friendships and I, I was writing from a lot of knowledge with that. And I think that's another big thing I'd like people to take away is to not take friendship for granted, which is a bit of a message in the book that they don't, just those five-minute phone calls. Women are so good at the five-minute phone calls about nothing, I think, whereas men possibly find them a bit harder. And so just that, how do you maintain these really valuable friendships? And I think also from Claire and Louisa, there's that point that these, the ones where you're really connected, as you get on on in life a bit, you realise they don't along, at school you've got to choose between so many people as you move through life that you don't have that wide choice facing you you don't meet as many people and so that they're not as they, they can be a bit rare and so they're worth looking after that's yes. a beautiful message and I totally agree with you friendships mm. are important particularly to women but I loved that you explored male friendship in this book as well I thought that was exactly so beautiful it, it's just as important and but very different Diane, The Wags was a long time in the making for you. And in terms of a debut, it's done as well as any could be expected with simultaneous publication deals, both here um, in Australia and in the UK, and along with your, you know, wonderful option for adaptation. So with that in mind, I wondered if you had any advice about either the writing or the publication process. What I did was I had a bit of a dream run and there was luck involved in it. But for most of my writing, I wrote on my own. I, I was too scared to give. I, I can't even begin to explain why I didn't give it to anyone to read, but I didn't. I didn't even give it to my husband. I I just kept editing and perfecting it. And it wasn't until I had the courage. I met an old friend in the park, dog park, who I hadn't seen for a couple of years, and she said, how's that novel you've been writing going? And I just finished it, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I knew, though, COVID, it was arriving, and I thought, I just need to get, you know, we were all so uncertain about the world, where the world was going to go, and I thought, I've worked so hard on this, I need to do something. And and she knew a writer, and that writer ended up reading it. And it, But that step in going out into the world was so important it, it, in involving other people. But not until you're ready. I had done a lot of, I, I probably went too long. I, I did so much self-editing that by the time I got to the agent, she didn't even want to touch a thing. She said, this is going straight out to publishers because it was so clean. But I probably didn't need to get that clean and <laughs> and in terms of time. And But the great bit of advice I was given to, was by this writer. She said, it gets a little bit dense. And I knew where it got dense, so I, I worked on that. And just having someone say that to me was brilliant. But she said, I think you should give it to a professional editor. And I didn't know to do that. So I paid a bit of money to get a professional editor to read the whole thing because when you send it off, people would know to agents or publishers for the first time they're only reading one chapter or maybe even the first paragraph of your synopsis, whereas that professional editor read the whole thing and gave me what's called a reader's report. Which So she didn't edit it. She was just telling me what she thought of my characters, my plot, whether it was commercial and... I was lucky enough that she loved it so much that she then mentioned it to a publisher at a book launch and that's how I got started. But that for me, and prior to that, I've actually got a novel sitting in a drawer, my first attempt, and I took that to a manuscript assessor. And so I just think those it takes courage to open yourself up to the sort of criticism you're going to get from these professionals, but they're very warm and 
it was very helpful. That really worked for me. Yeah, that would be my bit of advice to get that balance between you do need to do a lot of self-editing, but not. I probably went too far. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Is there anything that you now know about yourself or the publishing process that you wished you knew before you were published? Oh, maybe I think that I should do a little short course for debut authors in the editing process. I had no idea about the editing process, the structural edit, the copy edit, the proofread. I think I would like to have known more about that. I think that I didn't understand how much is edited in the editing process, that you can have, this, as I said before, this, this manuscript that's not perfect because it's going to go through, with big publishers, it's a year of work. So I, I think that, that's something that I wish I'd known, exactly how that was going to work, just in terms of the timeline. That is something that stumps a lot of debut authors. Yes, I'd recommend debut authors sit down with someone in the industry and say, can you give me a a good explanation of the editing process to understand it? I had no idea of of what a copy editor did. I thought a copy editor just read it like a proofreader, but they they have such an impact on the novel. The copy editor I had was amazing and and her insights and the way she would question something and I I would think about it and improve it. I found the collaborative part of it so rewarding. So I I wished I hadn't waited so long to bring in a team. Yeah, Mm. brilliant. That's wonderful advice. Thanks so much. Mm. If listeners wanted to find out more about you or to learn about your books, how can they do that? Well, I've got a website. Uh, So there's a bit about me on that and the events are listed that I've got coming up, um, dianeyarwood.com, and I'm on Instagram. And that's about it, I think. That's, <laughs> that's it was a big thing for me. I hadn't been on social media at all. It scared the living Dallas out of me. So, and I thought, oh, if I want to talk to someone, I'm going to phone them. But uh, I'm finding it fantastic to connect with people. So, and Instagram's Diane J. Yard. Surprisingly, Diane Yard was taken. There's a nurse in the UK oh. with my name. It's a very unusual name. Well, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. fascinating. So, and I'd love, I love getting the feedback on Instagram. It's great. What's next, Diane? Well, I'm working on my second novel. I, I, I'm now on a bit of a roll after all this time. I had started it when I was sort of waiting for the editing to get back uh, last year. So I'm hoping to get it done within the year. And it's another big theme with in, in a small interesting group of characters. Very different. Uh, not about death. Uh, a whole different thing I like to tackle the big ideas so, <laughs> you know the meaning of life things like that so. I love it I absolutely love it Diane it's thrilling to have had the chance to speak with you about this wonderful novel I wish you every success with it and the ones no doubt to follow thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today Oh, thanks for having me. I've loved it. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.